Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Hello there, all you good people out there in podcast land. You are listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Today, I'm going to be continuing picking up where I left off last week. Last week, I addressed William Lane Craig's objections to the Cosmic Temple Inauguration view of Genesis 1, which is defended by John Walton in his book The Lost World of Genesis 1, and is the place where I'm pretty sure most of us non-scholars heard about the interpretation for the very first time. I uh, show how William Lane Craig's criticisms just do not undermine the case for the functional origin that for the view that Genesis 1 is functional origins rather than material origins and that the seven day account is a structure of God inaugurating the physical universe as the as his temple i addressed that but i ran out of time so i had to cut it off and it's really it it's really fitting that I should do a two-part podcast episode because the William Lane Craig's criticism, his critique, is itself divided up into two different videos. And in the blog post where I respond to Craig, it is also a two-parter. It's two different blog posts. So today I'm going to be resuming my response to Craig. And the reason I'm doing this is because Craig has a lot of influence... Uh, it's very popular among those uh, studying apologetics and theology, and um, when I bring up this view of Genesis, uh, oftentimes I just get, oh, well, Craig's already refuted that. Uh, just show, just or they'll they'll show me to William Lane Craig's uh, defenders class and say he he Craig's already shown that this is this is nonsense, and I'm like nah. So I I really want to get this out there. Like I said last time, I highly, highly respect William Lane Craig. He has been a major, major influence in my in the intellectual area of my Christian walk. I he has bolstered my confidence in the truth of Christianity. I use all of I, I use all of the arguments he uses. I even use the same form, like the same syllogisms. I use the minimal facts. I'm a Molinist. He's a Molinist. We're both Arminians soteriologically, and we both agree in many areas. And I think, I think he's right more often than he is wrong. But in this area, this is one of the areas in which he is indeed wrong. So let's get started. I'm going to. St- I'm like last time. I'm going to play the clips where you can hear Craig for yourself. Today we will wrap up our discussion of the functional interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. According to that interpretation, you'll remember, 
the six days of creation do not represent days during which God actually brought these things into existence, but rather these are six literal consecutive days during which God specified functions for various existing things. Now, on this view, according to uh, John Walton, its principal proponent, days one to three establish various functions, and then days four to six establish functionaries, that is to say, things that will carry out the functions established on days one to three. So there is a kind of parallelism here, such as we saw in the literary framework view, but it's interpreted differently. Walton argues that days one to three serve to establish the basis for time measurement, uh, day and night, weather, the waters above and the waters below, and then food, the vegetation. So time measurement, weather, and food, uh, these functions are established on the first three days. Now, I don't think that we need to dispute the point that those things are created for these purposes. But that obviously does not imply that the creation of the dry land, the firmament, and the vegetation is not also affirmed along with the specification of their functions. Walton has a particularly... Okay, so that is... That is the first objection. The point, the point is, and he... Craig repeats this point ad nauseum, really. I, I don't know... He spends so much time just saying that it's a false dichotomy. Why can't it be both material and functional? Well... As I pointed out in the previous podcast episode and in the blog post that uh, this, that the podcast supplements, uh, Walton, he would agree that theoretically, Genesis 1 could, it could theoretically be both material origins and functional origins. Theoretically, there could be both a material and functional aspect of creation in the text. Uh, at least, at least, if all you're doing is examining verb uses, bara and asa, translated create and make respectively. However, Walton and I are both skeptical that both are indeed present in the text, and we say this on the basis of the following reasons. Reason one, <clears throat> uh, well, this is not a point that Walton makes, but it's a point that I make. Inspiring Philosophy made it in his response to William Lane Craig. Uh, and, and Michael Heiser has said this in, a, in an independent context. Uh, we argue that God's first creative act is in verse 3 rather than in verse 1. This is because verse 1 is, uh, is an independent clause. I brought this point up in the previous podcast episode. Verse 1 is an independent clause. It, 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 why? Because... Very briefly stated, there is no definite article. It should be translated when God created the heavens and the earth rather than in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Translating verse 1 this way makes it a dependent clause. Rather, it's a dependent clause, and that makes verse 2 a circumstantial clause, which then makes verse 3 the main clause. This structure can be seen in other ancient Near Eastern creation texts, such as Enuma Elish and Atrahasis, for examples. 
This means that when God shows up, so to speak, to create the heavens and the earth, the heavens and the earth are, uh, the material is already present. It goes, and, and I, I made the case last time that given the way tohu wabohu, the English, the Hebrew verbs that in Genesis 1, 2 are translated formless and void, when it, there is a plethora of examples in which tohu occurs, there's no examples in which bohu occurs by itself, but there are a plethora of examples in which tohu occurs, and whenever, and in those various places, formlessness, shapelessness is not the point. It's conveying purposelessness, functionlessness. It's you. I don't have the. I don't have the verses pulled. I don't have the list of verses pulled up, but the there. It sometimes refers to idols that accomplish nothing. They're worthless, and the one the people who make the idols are equally worthless. Uh, it refers to a. Uh, there's another verse that refers to a. Uh, a wasteland, a desert, uh, and so uh, David Zamora and John Walton agrees. Uh, John Walton and David Zamora both agree that on the basis of how tohu is used in many other places in the Bible. Uh, verse 2 should not be translated, the earth was formless and void, but rather the earth was an unproductive wasteland, or the earth was non-functional, or the earth had no purpose, or anything along those lines. Because that's the way tohu is usually uh, construed in, other Old Test in, in the Hebrew of other Old Testament texts. So... But in any case, in any case, e even, even given the traditional rendering... You, you could see that the earth is already there, and so is the deep, the ocean. Where did the earth come from? Where did the deep come from? Where did this material stuff come from? Genesis doesn't say. I mean, people think it sa Genesis says because they think Genesis 1-1 is an independent clause, and they interpret it to mean something like the Big Bang. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, meaning all matter, energy, space, and time. So that's where it came from. But, uh-uh, we've already shown there's a good reason, uh, and I go into more detail into this in the previous podcast episode. Uh, by the way, if you haven't listened to part one, you should probably do that. Don't listen to part two unless you've already listened to part one, because I'm going to assume some background knowledge, not only of the Cosmic Temple view, but of the points that Craig has already made, and of the points that, that, that I make, because uh, Craig, uh, there, there's, a, there's a lot of redundancy in his critique. Um, anyway, uh, verse 1, does, it should not say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it should say, when God created the heavens and the earth. Now, John Walton, he disagrees with this. He thinks it should be in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but he makes the argument in his book that Genesis 1-1 is more of like a an introductory statement to the rest of the chapter. Um, and, and he shows how Genesis uses this in, in other places, how it has introductory statements in the chapter that's going to give you a clue of what the, the, the rest of the passage is, is going to be about. Um, but either way, whether you think that uh, it should be rendered when God created the heavens and the earth, or if it's a like a chap, you know, kind of like the title of a book, the ch a chapter heading, so to speak. Either way, this is not this is not an independent act of creation. But I would favor I would favor Michael Heiser's argument that it's an independent clause. 
So, in the when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was an unproductive wasteland. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. No explanation of where the earth and the water come from. It's already present. Now, here, now the question I asked last time is, if this is an account of material origins, wouldn't you expect it to begin with no material? Yeah, and yet it doesn't begin with no material. Material is already present. Very odd for an account of material origins, that you just have God show up and to a to a watery, dark ocean that's already present. That's the first reason. The first reason is, is that that it's unlikely to be both a material and functional view of origins, is that you've already got material present. And if this were an account of material origins, the author would explain where the earth came from, where the, the ocean, the deep, came from. Reason two. Day two has a potentially material component. That is, the firmament. Because remember, in ancient Near Eastern thinking, they thought the sky was a solid dome that held back cosmic water. Sometimes there were little windows that opened up, and it would occasionally let some of that water down in the form of rain, and then they would close up again, and it would stop raining and so on. Very weird from our perspective, but that's what they thought of the sky. Uh, and so day two, looking at it from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, it pot potentially you could say, yeah, well, there is something material there. But if this were a legitimate material account, we would be obliged to find something up there, something solid. If we take Genesis 1 as an account of functional origins only, purely functional, then we're not obliged to find a solid dome up there. Now, Craig takes Walton to task in making this objection. He accuse, Craig accuses him, and by extension me, because I, I make the same argument, because I agree with him, uh, of resorting to concordism to support the Cosmic Temple inauguration view, or the functional origin view, which, you know, basically this is saying, Walton, you're being inconsistent. You're saying you sh we should not do concordist hermeneutics, and yet you're using concordism to support your own view. And of course, Cra uh, Craig is not just making a, a reductio ad absurdum here. Uh, he also disavows concordism. Uh, that's one thing he would agree with uh, in Walton is that we shouldn't use science to try to read between or try to read into the text or read scientific details out of it. But I don't think Craig is correct in uh, saying that Walton commits uh, the hermeneutical fallacy of of concordism. What Walton is doing is, he himself is making a reductio ad absurdum argument. What Walton was saying in his book was essentially, look, if you want, if you are absolutely insisting that this is an account of God materially making things, then you got a problem. You either have to say, A, God actually material cre materially created something that we know beyond a reasonable doubt does not exist, i.e. the solid dome sky. Or you can say, no, it's not about material origins, it's about functional origins. Or 
maybe it's you know not a di- not a dilemma but a trilemma or you can resort to concordis hermeneutics and say ah well the firmament doesn't really uh, teach a solid dome sky even though that's the way the ancients would have understood it, it it's it's you know it's actually just the expanse it's the sky that's what that's what it is it's it's the aura <laughs> or to use Hugh Ross's words it's the troposphere um you know, you can do that. Uh, now, if you take that first option, y- you are a, essentially a quack. No scientifically literate person could believe that there is a so- that there is actually a solid dome sky up there. I mean, if there were, the astronauts would have crashed into it when they went to the moon. Now, of course, if you <laughs> if you're one of those conspiracy theorists that think that the moon landing was fake, that argument won't affect you. But yeah, but other than that, there really is no other alternative other than to accept, uh, other than to resort to saying that the Hebrew word rakia, which is the Hebrew word translated as firmament, and it. it take that word and interpret it in such a way as to be foreign to the ancient Near Easterner, which is typical of Concordists like Ken Ham and Hugh Ross, for examples, or you can accept the Cosmic Temple Inauguration view, the Functional Origins view. So, in other words, what Walton is saying is that um, people like William Lane Craig need to pick their poison. Okay? You can say, God actually made a physical solid dome up there. Or, you could say, nope, rakia does not mean firmament. There is no solid dome up there. The Bible never says such a thing. Or you can say, yeah, the firmament is firm, but that's not the point of the that's not the point of the chapter. It's about functions. So whatever the nature of the firmament, that's not really the point. That's not really what God is teaching. He's teaching the function. So you got three options. Um I, for one, do not believe there's a solid dome up there, and I am not going to interpret biblical passages about nature in a way that conforms to our scientific understanding. We need to interpret the text the way an ancient person would have understood it. We need to get into their shoes. We need to see... we, we, We need to interpret words the way that they use them. Any hermeneutics teacher will tell you that, but of course when they get to Genesis and, and other creation passages, they, I, I think almost unwittingly, they take exception to it. Uh, I don't even think they consciously think it. they just like, oh, well, it's got to be, it's got to conform to the way we know reality really is from science, so the earth is, the earth never moves. That, me, that, that means it, it never moves from its orbit. So that that's what that's what Walton is doing. He he's not resorting to concordism. He's actually he's actually presenting a trilemma to the person who disagrees with his position and say, "Hey, you can agree with me or you can disagree with me and you have these other two unreasonable alternatives." Uh, in order for Craig to escape, he would have to show that it's a false trilemma, that there's a fourth option. Um but he, he doesn't do that in the video. Okay, reason three, it is only about, to think it's only about function and not also about material. Reason one is 
the account begins, reason one is the account begins with materials. And if it were a material account, we would it would begin with no materials. Re- reason two is it, God creates the firmament, but you know if you take it as a material uh, origin, uh, a material account of origins, you have to say something solid's up there, or you have to resort to concordism and uh, explain the dome language away in a way that conforms to our modern science. Reason three is that days four and six deal explicitly with the material components on a functional level. Now, Craig responds to this by saying... Okay, I paused the recorder and I scanned around for a little bit trying to find... uh, (laughs) trying to find where Craig responds to this argument, but I, I, I can't find it. So I'm just going to read from uh, the blog post in which I quote his response. He says that when in day and four and six dealing explicitly with the material components of on a functional level, he says, quote, this might be the case for the sun, moon, and stars, admittedly, but it's clearly false for the animals. When God says, let the earth bring forth living creatures, living creatures, and it's probably false for man as well when God says, let us make man in our image, since man was not among the animals. He didn't exist at that time, and so needed to be created by God. So I think that days four and six do deal with the creation of material objects and not just functions, end quote. But why think that, why think that is clearly false, though? Just because the text says, let the earth bring forth living creatures? But what if God is assigning the the function of the earth? That's the earth's job, to bring forth living creatures. That's its function. That's what God hired it to do, so to speak. We need not see this as the original material creation of animals unless we come to the text presupposing that Genesis 1 is about material origins. Craig once again begs the question against the, against the functional origins view. As for man, the, the text says, quote, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. End quote. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Well, look at that. Functions. Mankind's function, man's function is limited, is including but not limited to ruling over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and the land animals. Also, what does Craig mean that the functional view is probably false for man because Man didn't exist at that time and needed to be created by God. Yeah, my, man was not functioning in the cosmic temple prior to being assigned a role, but he existed in a material sense. It seems Craig is again begging the question in favor of material creation. When Craig says, quote, finally, objection number four is that on day five, functions are mentioned— and the Hebrew word for create, bara, is used. Uh, he, he says, answer, bara is efficient causation, the production of the effect. And 
the material origin of bird and, and sea creatures on day five is clearly in view. Again, the creation of material objects like, like birds and sea creatures doesn't require that God created the ex nihilo, end quote. He, he's again begging the question. Bara has already been demonstrated to not always be about material creation, which he calls efficient causation here, which, by the way, I mean, that's illegitimately applying Aristotelian categories to a pre-Aristotelian text. Uh, uh, Moses wouldn't have been thinking in Aristotelian categories, efficient causation, material causation, final causation. He he wouldn't have been thinking like that. Uh, uh, That's that's interpreting categories upon the ancient biblical text that just wouldn't have been in the mind of the author. Uh, But anyway... We looked at several of these texts in last week's podcast in which bara and asa, which are translated as create and make, they they are used several times, and they do not refer to material creation, ex nihilo or otherwise. Psalm 51.10, Psalm 89.12, Isaiah 45.7, Isaiah 65.18 are just a few examples in which bara is used and no material is used. No, no material is produced. Psalm 51.10, God, uh, the, the psalmist says to God, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Doesn't mean that he's asking God to create a new blood-pumping organism and put it in his chest so that he has two blood-pumping organisms like Doctor Who, the, the doctor. Um, no, he's asking God to reorient his his mind, his heart, make him a, a better person. So that that's one example. You can look up the other examples, or you can just go to listen to last week's podcast, but there's just a lot of examples. Uh, in Psalm 51.10, Psalm 89.12, Isaiah 45.7, and Isaiah 65.18, I think that last one is the one where God says, I create Jerusalem to be a place for joy. doesn't mean that he snapped his fingers and poof, all of a sudden you have buildings and people and a, a society. You, get, you have a city there. Uh, that's not what it means when he says, I create Jerusalem to be a place of joy. It's a functional origin. I create Jerusalem for the pu- for the purpose of being a joy to the people. That's what it's there for. Isaiah 45, 7, um, if I remember correctly, that's the one where God says, um, To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Who, uh, who bring, look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings them out? the starry host out one by one and calls them by name. Well, we know that the sun, moon, and stars are physical objects, burning balls of gas, producing light and heat, and we know that light consists of photons and wave particles, but the someone in the ancient Near East would not have understood that. They didn't know, they weren't thinking in terms of waves and particles. They, 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 just, they thought light was immaterial. They thought the... St- they thought the stars up there, well, I mean, depending on the culture, some thought that they were gods, uh, but the Israelites didn't believe that they were gods. At least I don't, I don't think so. They're, you know, I don't know how this interacts with the divine council worldview. Uh, if you'll, you'll remember what that is if you listen to my interview with Michael Heiser on his book, The Unseen Realm. But uh, they, they did. 
some some Israelites may have thought that they were members of God's divine council, but if they didn't believe that, they certainly wouldn't have known that they were gigantic suns uh, with plasma and all all the stuff that the sun is made of. They they thought they didn't know that they didn't think that they were material objects. If they if they thought if they thought that they were anything like a, an, a material object, it would have been a, a god. But they didn't conceive of stars the way that we know of them. So to point to Psalm Isaiah forty five seven say, oh well, stars are material things. That's not light. Look at light. That's not going to work. There's also I, I remember I quoted a text the last time. I can't remember the reference. It was in Isaiah as well where God says that he creates uh, peace and disaster. Well, peace and disaster are not material objects. So, material creation cannot be in view when, it's, when the text says that God baraz them. There are times, bar, there are times bara could mean material creation. But the problem is, is that it... There is never a time it necessarily has to mean that. It either has to not refer to material creation, or it's ambiguous. But there are times where it, there, 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 it, it's either ambiguous, or it cannot refer to material creation. But there's never a time that, where it has to mean material creation. Uh, the time, the the parts, the the places where it cannot mean material creation would would be like Psalm fifty one ten, create in me a clean heart, Isaiah forty five seven, the starry hosts, uh, the the uh, they're they're just lights. That lights are not immaterial in the ancient thinking. Uh, Isaiah sixty five eighteen, um, I create Jerusalem to be a place for joy. I create peace and disaster. The, these are not material things. So, John Walton would say, okay, so when, in a Hebrew mind, bara is not about material creation, it's about assigning functions. If you have places where it can't possibly mean material creation, and you never have a time where it has to mean material creation, and there's plenty of ambiguity in between, you're likely to conclude that Genesis 1 is not it's likely not about material creation, especially when functions are explicitly stated day after day after day. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation. What does that mean? That means this is the function of the land. Its, go it, its function is to produce vegetation. Seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, i.e., the function of the vegetation is to produce food, according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, i.e., the function was assigned just as God commanded. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the third day. Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 to 13. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night function, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years function, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth function. And it was so. God made two great lights, 
the greater light to govern the day function, and the lesser light to govern the night function. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. Function, function, function. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 to 19. So it, it looks like a fun, it looks like a functional origins account to me. Okay, so now I'm going to move on to Craig's objections, not just not just the whole functional material component of the view, but the objections to viewing Genesis one as a temple account. And also argues that. Um the Genesis account represents um, God's coming to reside in the world as his cosmic temple. He notes that in the ancient world, gods were conceived to reside in temples. And so God's resting on the seventh day indicates that God comes to reside in the cosmos as his temple. The seven days of the creation week are a reflection of the seven days of dedication that were part of the inauguration of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. What should we make of this suggestion? Well, I think the problem with this suggestion is that there's just no evidence in the text of Genesis that the author thinks of the world as God's temple or of God's resting as his coming to reside in his temple. Let me just stop right there. Um, that there's no evidence in the text. Um, I suppose you would think that if, if you're not acquainted with the whole ancient Near Eastern mindset. Uh, if you're not familiar with how temples were were built and the um, special the specialness of the number seven uh, with regards to temples and so on, uh, I'll get back to that in a moment because Craig will he'll go into more detail in that in a little bit, and it's really really wrong headed. But I'm going to continue to play the the clip. In Genesis chapter 2, um, verses 2 to 3, we read, And on the seventh day God finished his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all his work, which he had done in creation. There's nothing there to indicate that on the seventh day God came to reside in the cosmos as a temple. Walton's view depends upon, I think, making a false equivalence between God's resting and his residing.
on the functional interpretation, you see, God doesn't need to rest because he hasn't been creating anything during the previous six days. And therefore, uh, this notion that resting must equal residing is a result of this functional interpretation. Since God hasn't been working, he cannot cease from working on the seventh day. Um, so it's simply his residing in the temple, which is read into the text and is dependent upon this functional interpretation. This is, uh, I think this is the worst objection that Craig has brought to his, uh, let, me, let me plug in my internal mic here. I mean, uh, my external mic rather, the, the one that has the windshield. Um, Craig says God can't rest from his work because on the functional view, he wasn't working. He wasn't doing anything. I, I'm just baffled at how such a sharp thinker as Craig, and Craig is a brilliant man. Again, don't, don't get me wrong. I am, a, I am a big... One could accuse me of being a William Lane Craig fanboy. He is a really, he's a really brilliant man, and I'm, I'm just shocked that someone as, as smart and has... You know, someone who has such a sharp mind as him could, could make an objection like this. God certainly was doing work throughout the seven days of creation. He was assigning functions. He was assigning functions to time, weather, food, sea creatures, animals, and humans. Just because God wasn't materially bringing these things into being doesn't mean that he wasn't doing anything. Has a king done nothing when he determines the roles his subjects will have in his kingdom? There's no way to sugarcoat it. This objection is just plain awful. He was working. He was assigning functions. Here is what John Walton says in his NIV application commentary on Genesis. Quote, The seventh day is marked by God ceasing the work of the previous six days and settling into the stability of the cosmos he created, perhaps experiencing refreshment as he did so. End quote. Now, I have to think, does Craig think that God wasn't doing work because naming things and assigning functions is effortless? Well, if that were, he doesn't say that, but I have to think that that might be an underlying assumption that would bring out this objection. And if that's the case, how would, a, how would viewing Genesis 1 as material origins fix that? After all, even Craig would ag agree that God is omnipotent. He can do anything that is logically possible. For him to physically create everything that exists is just as effortless to him as saying, okay, son, your job is to provide light on the earth. Moon, your job is to provide light during the night. You govern day and night. It's just as effortless as as naming things and saying, this is what this is what I intend for them to do in in my temple, in my universe. I don't see, I mean, if it, if the idea is that he wasn't working, it wasn't laborious, laborious to him, therefore he has nothing to rest from, then, you know, the advocate of seeing Genesis 1 as material origins is, is just as much of a bind. 
but um, let, let's, let's move on. On the traditional interpretation, the seventh day is a day in which God rests. It is the archetype for the Sabbath day during which we cease from work. So to justify his interpretation, Walton has to go outside of Genesis, since it's not in the text of Genesis, which is, I think, in and of itself a dubious procedure. Dif of course you're going to look at the cultural context. Why, why wouldn't you look at the cultural context? If you're going to read a text that's thousands of years old and that comes from another country, you had better understand the literature of that time period and, and eras, area so that you know how they thought and don't impose your own cultural presuppositions onto the text. As Inspiring Philosophy pointed out in his own response to Craig, Craig's objection is tantamount to saying, how dare you go outside the Declaration of Independence to understand it by going to the Federalist Papers? Of course he would of course you would do that. John Locke can provide some light on the Declaration of Independence. And no, I'm not referring to the bald guy from Lost. It's a part of the cultural context. You know, you, it, to get a better understanding of the Declaration of Independence, you go outside of it. You go to documents like the Federalist Papers. You read John Locke, and that can that can shed some light on what the, is meant in the Declaration of Independence. Cultural context. Likewise, looking at other documents of the time and geographic location that Genesis was written in can provide some light on the cultural themes of Genesis one. So I don't think it's I don't think it is at all a dubious procedure. And and when you do go to the other ancient Near Eastern texts, not to mention other places in the Bible, you do find support for seeing God's resting on the seventh day as taking up his residence in a temple. Many creation texts describe the absence of a temple as a major part of the pre-cosmic condition. This is, this is clearest in the preamble that concerns the founding of Eridu. I'm going to read that now. The holy house, the house of the gods, in the holy place that had not yet been made, no reed had sprung up, no tree had been created, no brick had been laid, no building had been set up, no house had been erected, no city had been built, no city had been made, no creature had been created, Nippur had not been made, Ikur had not been built, Erek had not been created, Iana had not been built, the deep had not been created, Eridu had not been built. Of the holy house, the house of the gods, the habitation had not been made. All lands were sea. At that time there was a movement in the sea. Then was Eridu made, and Isagal was built. Isagal, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, were in the midst of the deep, the god Lugaldulazag. I'm just going to call him Lugal for short. Uh, Lugal dwelleth. <laughs> the city of Babylon was built, and Isagil was finished. End quote. And then the text goes on to say Marduk settles the gods into their dwelling places, he creates people and animals, and he sets up the Tigris and the Euphrates. Good for you, Marduk. <laughs> In a prayer to dedicate the fountain brick of a temple, 
it, it is obvious that the cosmos and temple were conceived together, and thus are virtually simultaneous in their origins. Quote, when Anu, Enlil, and Ea had a first idea of heaven and earth, they found a wise means of providing support of the gods. They prepared in the land a pleasant dwelling, and the gods were installed in this dwelling, their principal temple. End quote. Now, I'm going to address uh, Craig's third objection to viewing the text as a cosmic temple view. He, he, in this video, he quotes Isaiah 66.1, and he actually thinks that it undermines Walton's view, which is weird, because Walton actually uses Isaiah 66.1 to support his view. What does Isaiah 66.1 say? Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Dr. Craig says, quote, I don't think that supports Walton's view at all. What it says there is that heaven is uh, God's, where God's throne is, where God is seated, and the earth is just his footstool, end quote. To that I have to say, so? According to, the according to ancient Near Eastern cosmology, heaven was a part of the cosmos. The ancients believed in a three-tiered cosmos. The first heaven was the solid dome firmament, underneath which the birds would fly. The second heaven is where the cosmic waters existed. The third heaven was God's throne. It was the place disembodied souls went to await the bodily resurrection. Now, Craig seems to be viewing the text through modern evangelical lenses, thinking of heaven as a supernatural realm apart from our physical universe. I think that is a correct way to view heaven, theologically, but we have to understand that the ancient Israelites didn't see it that way. To them, heaven, i.e. the third heaven where God's throne is, is a part of our universe. To them, it was just as much a part of our universe as the first and second heavens were, where the 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 clouds and the birds and the and the cosmic waters were. And I also want to point out that Craig omits the last half of Isaiah 66.1, which is arguably the more relevant portion. Quote, where is, when, after saying, after God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, he says, where is the house that ye build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? The reference to God's rest as parallel to taking up residence in his temple is the main point Walton makes out of this passage. And Craig just seems to skip over it. Why? Only God knows. Objection four. Craig's fourth objection is that God had a temple, but that it was in Jerusalem. And he, in this video, he goes on to cite Psalm 132 to make the point, which is, again, ironically, another verse Walton uses to support his interpretation. But I don't see how God having a localized, literal, physical temple in Jerusalem precludes God having the universe as his cosmic temple. Indeed, Solomon seemed to recognize that the cosmos was the true temple of God in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 27 and 30. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven, and the highest heaven, cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. 
And hearken thou to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel, when they pray towards this place, Yea, hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and when thou hearest, forgive. End quote. King James Version. Obviously. <laughs> In other words, you know, what Solomon is saying in this passage is that God's glory was just too much for a man-made temple to handle. God is infinitely greater than the gods of the pagan nations, and so unlike them, he cannot be so confined. Instead, when people plead to God, he will hear from heaven. Again, think like an ancient Near Eastern person. Heaven was a part of the cosmos in their view. Ironically, in this very same passage, uh, the, uh, ironically, 1 Kings 8, the, the passage I just, just cited, is the one that Craig uses in, a, in his attempt to refute John Walton. What I find really funny here is that three biblical texts Craig uses to try to refute Walton are actually texts that Walton uses to support his position. It's just very ironic. Um... Uh, so, in conclusion, I think that William Lane Craig has failed at refuting the Cosmic Temple Inauguration uh, interpretation of Genesis. I still find the Cosmic Temple Inauguration view to be the most likely interpretation of Genesis. Uh, I think it has the weight of the biblical text behind it. I think it has the weight of the Hebrew language behind it. I think it fits very nicely within the cognitive environment of the ancient Near East. Um, and it has, I mean, any problems it might have, it, it doesn't have nearly as many problems as a lot of the other interpretations of Genesis that I've examined, uh, both in the Concordist camp and in the non-Concordist camp. Um, so I'm going to continue to affirm it until I either find a better interpretation, one that seems even more accurate according to the ancient Near Eastern mindset, or if I find just, or if I discover so many problems with Walton's view that I, I may be currently blinded to, uh, that I just have to abandon it and say, well, I don't know what to make of Genesis, I'm just going to have to go find another interpretation. But, I mean, I haven't found any problems it, it seems to be a, a very solid interpretation, and I think it's true. I'm not dogmatic about it, but if I were to, if I were to quantify my certainty, I would say that I am no no less than ninety percent certain it is true. Ninety nine percent certain at the most, but no lower than ninety percent. Uh, that's how confident I am that Walton's view is correct. Um. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Um, next week, I'm going to be looking at Hugh Ross's objections to the Cosmic Temple view of Genesis 1. Um, he wrote a very lengthy blog post on the Reasons to Believe website, and I'm going to be tackling the, uh, his objections to this view in the next episode. I want to give a shout-out to my Cerebral Faith patrons, Kevin Walker, my patron from across the pond over there in the UK. You are awesome. You are a $20 tier. David Parrish, you are also awesome. My $10 tier. And uh, James Whitaker, Jordan Hampton, 
Austin Long, thank you guys for supporting this ministry. Um, it, it's very helpful to, to have your support because uh, without it, I wouldn't have been able to switch from blogger to WordPress. And also, it, it goes... It goes. It goes to other ministry things. Uh, and by the way, if you if you are not a Cerebral Faith patron, you can become a patron by going to Patreon.com/CerebralFaith. Or you you can also get to the Patreon page from the homepage of the Cerebral Faith website, CerebralFaith.net. It'll be in a slider. And what you can get if you become a Cerebral Faith patron is. You can, just the lowest tier, the $3 tier, if you donate $3 a month, you will get, um, you'll get all of my Kindle books, um, every single one, and you'll, you'll get, you'll get more as I, as they're released. Like, I'm working on a book on hell now, I recently became a conditionalist, I'm no, also known as an annihilationist, so... A hellacious doctrine is a fallacious doctrine. <laughs> so I'm rewriting that book. So you'll get that if you're you'll get that one if you're a patron and you you won't have to pay anything more than three dollars. Other people will have to pay like nine ninety nine. Uh, but you'll get all of my Kindle books that are currently out, and you'll get more as I write them. You'll get early access to blog posts. You'll get early access to podcast episodes. You'll get shout outs on the podcast. Um and you'll get to become a part of the Secret Cerebral Faith Patrons Facebook group. This Facebook group is for patrons only. You can interact with me, and you can interact with other patrons like you. Now, if you become a member of the $20 tier, you can you get everything I just mentioned, but you also get to join a group chat on either Google Hangouts or Skype once a month. Um... So thank you for thank you for your support, your patrons, and I hope I get some more patrons. And uh, thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith podcast. I will see you next week, and we will take down Hugh Ross's objections to the Cosmic Temple view. And by the way, I respect him too. I learned a lot about the fine tuning argument and uh, Big Bang cosmology from his works, particularly Creator in the Cosmos. So this is an apologist that I respect, but I don't think his view on Genesis 1 is correct, and I certainly don't think his uh, cr critique of the lost world of Genesis 1 is that persuasive, so, but well, you know, we, we'll be looking at that next time. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, the Cerebral Faith Podcast. I will see you next time. Peace out, and God bless. Thank you.